I, I really feel like it's a little bit um, maybe quiet and I don't know, like introverted today. And, um, and I feel like I'm booming. Am I booming? No? All right. I'll just keep shouting my normal way then. Uh, but we are talking about worship over this series. And, and this is complete side note, but it just popped to me as, as Dylan was talking about the whole idea of gift. And I, I've been listening to a podcast doing different word studies in the Bible. And there's this word study on grace, uh, on the word grace. And it was really interesting because the word grace, I think we lose sight of it in our modern culture. Uh, or in our Christian world, we think about grace as completely just this merited, unmerited gift from God. You see, God gives grace. But there's something else about grace and, and worship that is actually quite beautiful. And that is that when you see something that is gracious or graceful, you, in natural terms, in worldly terms, you, you want to give it praise. You want to give it some, uh, some favor back. So for example, this is not me at all because I do not know how to see favor or, or grace in ballet, but if, if someone loves ballet and you watch the ballet, uh, some people go like, wow, look at how they went on the tiptoes and all that kind of stuff. And there will be this standing ovation. For me, I love musicals. Uh, I love music. I can go to a music. Oh, like, look at that. Look at that. Look at how they did that and all that. And I'll be like effusive in my praise because what I saw was gracious and demands that I give a response. And that is what worship can be like. We see how amazing and gracious God is, and we cannot help but give a response to that. And so that is an element of worship. And, and last week we talked about the word adore, and we talked about the, the origins of the word. So not the modern use of the word were, uh, adore. The modern usage of the word adore is basically when something gives you pleasure and so you are fond of it. That's the basic meaning of how people use the word adore uh, nowadays. But in the, the original form, the word adore means to give divine honor to. And the key word there, as I have put it in capital, is divine. It is that they, uh, what you are giving adoration to must be God. <laughs> You cannot give your adoration to something other than God. We talked about how sometimes we can give our adoration to things that are man-made and we give it this divine attribute that it has this kind of power over our lives. Uh, but we talked about how we really need to bring our adoration just solely to God alone. And so last week we talked about the why of worship. It is to uh, recalibrate ourselves to see who God is and how He needs to be uh, adored because He is God and the only God. And today we're going to talk a bit more about how to worship. We're going to talk about just, just different, like maybe not so much different ways, but really uh, when you think about worship, what, 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 do you, what comes to mind? How do you worship? And to do that today, I'm going to, is that a funny sound? Sorry. Yes. Do not be distracted. <laughs> Don't do what I'm doing. But I'm going to talk about how to worship today through the myth of the naked king, okay? So we're going to be talking about the naked king. And you will find, out, find us out pretty soon, pretty quickly. Um, we're not talking about the emperor's new clothes, um, but maybe a very similar kind of a story that, that some of us get, that brings to mind anyway. But we're going to be looking at Second uh, Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at a character that most of us are really familiar with, and that is King David. And I'm just going to catch everyone up before we dive into the story, uh, the, the story of King David. 
And King David at this point was just made king of Israel. He was king of a few tribes before this. King Saul was leading the rest of the tribes of Israel. There was all of this civil war type stuff that was going on. But we know King David because he is a man after God's own heart. He had done some amazing things. And so what happens is that David is now made king of all of Israel and he makes Jerusalem the capital. The the capital of um, Israel is also known as the city of David. And so David is ruling there. And so at this point of time in this story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David decides that he wants to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. The ark of God, you might know it as the ark of the covenant. It represents God's presence. And so it kind of makes sense. David, the new king, wants to bring the presence of God into the very place that he's ruling. And so we're going to pick up the story from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. And it says this, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out, oh sorry, sorry, there was a few more little bits of information. So David actually gathers all of Israel, Uh, sorry, I jumped across, I was too excited. Uh, David gathers all of Israel, they proceed to bring the ark into Jerusalem, they put the ark on a new cart, so they build this cart specifically for this occasion, and they start the procession into Jerusalem. And then now, 2 Samuel 6, verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Take note of this. It says that is an irreverent act. In fact, really interestingly, because I did a little bit of study into that, when I was kind of thinking, what does this whole irreverent thing mean? And I went back to the Hebrew. This word is used once in the whole Old Testament, one time. It only appears here, which is kind of interesting. And it kind of has the connotation of an error, something wrong uh, about the NIV that I'm reading from translates it as irreverent. It was an irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is named Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? I just want to make a quick point there. When it says that the Lord's wrath broke out against Uzzah, it brings to mind for us in our modern day context that God had this really hot anger. It was a very emotional act, right? That's that's what we think. In the Hebrew um, Bible, when they talk about God's wrath, it is always associated with God's justice. This irreverent act that Uzzah did, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, was so grievous that God had no choice but to act justly by killing him. Pretty crazy stuff, but we'll leave it there for the moment. I just want you to notice that God was not acting emotionally. He was acting out of justice, okay? And so David was so scared about this episode that he actually leaves the ark uh, where, uh, where Uzzah fell and he, uh, the ark was placed in um, a guy, a guy's house. His name is Obed-Edom, which is uh, um, really interesting because Obed-Edom was not an Israelite or most likely not an Israelite. Um, it says that he is Obed-Edom, a Gittite. And so I was like, where, where in the world is or whatever that place is, is actually Gath, in case you were wondering. Uh, and if you are familiar with the Bible story, um, Gath is a town uh, of the Philistines. 
And maybe you would be familiar with the Philistines because the Philistines are enemies of Israel. In fact, David kills one of the Philistines in his most famous act, which was... Goliath, there we go. We've got some Christians in the house. That's good. And so David kills this Philistine named Goliath. In fact, I, I didn't actually search this out, but I think Goliath actually came from Gath. Um, and so this same town, now the Ark of the, God, of the Lord is there, and it stays there because David is so scared of him. I wonder whether David kind of brought this ark to a non-Israelite because he was like, hey, God's angry. Let's leave this ark with my enemies and let's see what happens. I don't know. We don't see how David was thinking there. But this is crazy because over the next three months while the ark is with Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom is so blessed crazily blessed that someone had no choice but to go to David and give a report that Obed-Edom's household was so blessed. Okay, so just keep this in mind because it's a bit of an interesting story and we're going to unpack it a bit more. And um, so David hears that Obed-Edom is not being struck down but instead being blessed by God. And he goes, you know what? I want God's presence. I want God's presence here with me. And so he initiates a second attempt to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. And so we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12 to 22. Uh, so David went, up, went to bring the ark, sorry. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michelle, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Um, and so Michelle's also um, David's wife. And Saul was the previous king, just to give you context. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel lights both men and women and all the people went to their homes. Quick note here because I thought it was interesting as well. Um, whenever the Israelites celebrated God, there was always food. There was always this celebration. There was food. There was, yes, there were times of fasting, but they will often break the fast with food. There's something about God allowing us or, or enjoy, liking to see us enjoy Older he's got as well. Anyway, side note. When David returned home to bless his household, Michelle, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michelle, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes and by these slave girls you spoke of I will be held in honor and Michelle daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. This whole idea that Michelle had no kids 
she was barren from that moment on, is, is a very biblical concept of the Lord's hand being lifted from her life. She no longer had God's blessing upon her anymore. And this story is where there is this myth that David danced naked before the Lord to worship him. I don't know, how many of you grew up in church? Anyone? A few people. How many of you, when you were taught this story as a young kid, you were probably shown some kind of picture of David in his tidy whities dancing before the Lord, right? Yeah, people remember that. And, 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 and I remember this particularly because I'm a boy and boys always joke about these things. And so the teachers had a hard time because the whole Sunday school message is that we are supposed to worship God and be undignified. And then they showed us a picture of a guy dancing in his underwear. And so where do you think guys' minds go? The next Sunday when it's worship time, remember to worship like David. <laughs> it was kind of like that was what was going on in our class. And, and we never quite understood the heart behind this story. All we thought about was the king was dancing naked. Now, I'm here to tell you today that that is completely the wrong interpretation of this story, and I want to unpack it with you. And the reason why it is wrong is because people took a lot of stuff out of context. First and foremost, they said that David was wearing a linen ephod. They didn't do enough research into understanding what a linen ephod is. We will be doing that in a little while. But a lot of um, people just simply thought that it was linen underwear. And then, uh, obviously, Michelle says that David was going around half naked in full view of the slave girls, and they were thinking that he was literally dancing in this loose-fitting linen underwear, and as he was dancing, he was flashing the crowd. That was what people thought David was doing. In fact, they were thinking that David dancing in his tidy whities was already a euphemism. They thought that he was, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> And um, so, was David dancing naked? Was that what was going on? Are we to dance naked before the Lord? Is that what is taking place? Stay tuned. I'm going to show you that that's not what's what happening, or not, not what is happening. Uh, but, but to really interpret this whole story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, we need to understand um, a little bit more of the context. And the Bible itself actually gives us uh, some really interesting contextual elements that we need to piece together. Um, you see in the books 1 and 2 Samuel as well as 1 and 2 Kings, um, that these four books kind of travel historically through Israel's um, history of kings. Yep, starting from Samuel the prophet anointing Saul and then anointing David, and then from there you go into kings where you got Solomon and then etc, 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 all the way through. And then after you read 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, you read uh, if you're reading through the Bible uh, from cover to cover, you hit these two books called 1 and 2 Chronicles, which kind of seems like a complete rehash of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And then you go, why the heck am I reading the same thing again? The reason for that is that 1 and 2 Chronicles was written to the Israelites after the exile. You see, at the end of 2 Kings, Israel is so terrible that God sends them away into exile. After they were in exile for a few years, quite a long time, they were then allowed back into their land. And during that time, the person who wrote 1 and 2 Chronicles went, I need to remind the Israelites about why they went into exile, and I need to show them how to worship God. And so when you read 1 and 2 Chronicles, what is really interesting about those two books is that it is specifically written to teach the Israelites about worship. 
is about how to worship God. And so you will see in those two books, there's a whole bunch of kings that are not even mentioned at all because they did not know how to worship God. And so when we see in 1 and 2 Chronicles the same episodes, is because the person that was writing it thought that there were some important messages about worship for the post-exile Israelites, okay? And so what we need to do is to piece them together to see what is truly happening in this episode. And we can learn two key lessons about how to worship from piecing this together. And the first is this, that God does not do second place. God does not do second place. Let's look at 1 Chronicles 13, verses 1 to 3. It says this, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and he then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and the Levites who are with them, etc., etc., etc. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul, the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. Now, that at first glance, especially in our democratic society, goes, oh, David is such a good king. He goes and he confers with all these different people, right? Now, understand this. This is not a democracy. David is called king, not prime minister, not president, not president-elect. He is king. And what king wants to do, king gets to do. And so what David is doing here is really interesting. And I would like to put forward to you this thought. What if people didn't like the idea of bringing the ark to Jerusalem? What would David have done? Would he have then gone, oh, uh, you, you, don't, you don't like that? You think there's a waste of time? Oh, you think it's a waste? Oh, okay, let's not bring the ark of God in then. Is that what David would have done? It, it went ahead because everyone thought that was a good idea. But why did David need to confer and to ask all these people about the ark? Well, I think it's because David had an ulterior motive. In bringing in the ark into Jerusalem, it would also represent David's first procession as king into Jerusalem. You see, in, the, in those times, it was a really big deal for kings to come in to their ruling city. It was a big deal to have a procession. And so maybe David thought, oh, this is a good way to do a procession. I am going to bring the ark of God in. I'm going to make this whole procession about God and David. We're going to do this God and David show. We're going to do this, this in tandem. Well, like this duo is like Bonnie and Clyde. I don't know. Who, who are any duos? I don't know any duos. Simon and Garfunkel. It's... it's I don't know. Sorry, it's just not working right now. There's a, there's a couple of people in my head, but their names escape me. But David wanted to do this duo act with God, where it's like, let's go into Jerusalem triumphantly together. And to, to show this to you, there was another little detail that I thought was really interesting. You see, David got two guys to guard the ark. Remember we talked about how David built this new ark for God, and then he puts the ark on it, and he puts two guys to guard the ark. These guys, their names are Uzzah and Ahio. Uzzah and Ahio were the sons of Abinadab. You do not know, there's no test for all of these names. I just want you to understand who these guys are. These guys were the sons of Abinadab, who was housing the ark of God all of this time? 
They were not necessarily Levites. They could have been Levites. We're not sure. But what it tells me is that David was trying to curry favor with people. David was using this whole procession as a political act to build favor for himself. And this whole episode shows that God doesn't do second place. In our worship of God, when we place ourselves first, or when we place ourselves next to God, when our worship of God comes with this hedging and this combining to, to be like, bless the Lord and bless me, bless the Lord and bless me. When we sing songs of worship to God, is it with the heart of, I like to worship because I feel blessed? Or is it because I want to worship God because I need to bless Him? Because I need to sing praises to Him. Is our adoration split? Because not only do we want to worship God, but we want something for ourselves. And I know that for myself, that this has not always been an easy route. That my worship has often been, I, I love worship. I love music. And, and singing songs to God has always been a nice, comforting place for me, it's a secure place. It's a place of, of many amazing things. But I realized that at some point in my life, my worship of God was about my worship of God rather than my worship of God. And David had this issue at the start of his rulership when he tried to tack on this act together with God. And what we know is that someone died because of this. I, I mean, I don't want to take this too far. The Bible doesn't tell us that God made the oxen stumble um, and all of those issues. But I wonder if God was trying to basically say to David, hey, hang on, this is not how it's done. And so David actually knew that he did something wrong. I reckon David actually knew that God was highlighting an issue here. It took him three months to work this out. And so he then gets to a place where he goes, no, 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 I need to make this right. And so what David then does is something that I think is something we can all learn. And this is the second thing that we can learn about worship, is that God is worship in His way, not our way. You see, in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 2, this is the second attempt to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. And David says this, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. Okay, so David actually says, one of the issues that we had the first time is that we put the ark on a cart and then Uzzah accidentally, not accidentally, thinking that he is meant to be securing the ark, he touches the ark, which is an irreverent act, which then causes him death. We don't understand that, but in those days, it was a very clear, very, very, very clear issue that God had set up, that His presence is not to be just touched anyhow that we like. There were very strict rules on how the ark was to be managed, I guess, or, or brought around. And in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 2, we see that David actually knows this. David knows that the Levites are meant to be carrying the Ark of God on the shoulders. And we see this in the Torah in uh, Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. Okay, so this has already been set up. Now, there was a quick thought in my mind that was like, 
how is David supposed to know all of these things? Shouldn't it have been someone else that said, hey, David, by the way, cart is no good. We need the shoulders of Levites. That's how God, how is David supposed to know? I, I was thinking about that until recently when I read the Bible for myself, which is a good thing. Uh, but something stood out to me and it said this, that every single king of Israel is meant to write down word for word the whole Torah. When you become king of Israel, your job is to literally transcribe the first five books of the Bible. Every king was meant to know the Torah. Every king was supposed to be intimately aware of how God was to be treated. David knew before, I believe, the first episode that God's presence represented by the ark was always meant to be carried on the shoulders of Levites and not by a cart made by a man. He was meant to be carried in a specific way. And I think that David knew this and so he freaked out because he was like, wow, God really is true to his word. When God says something, he actually means it. This is a situation that we need to understand. That sometimes in our Western mindset, in our grace mindset, we kind of treat God like one of our mates. We treat God the way that we want to treat God rather than understand that God is still God and that He's unchanging yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we don't obey or follow the ceremonial laws in the Torah because Jesus is the embodiment and the fulfillment of all of those ceremonial laws, and He has created a way for us to enter into God's presence with confidence. I love that. That is the New Testament, New Covenant that we receive. We don't have to do all of those things. We don't have a wooden box that is covered in gold that we need to be carrying on our shoulders to represent God's presence with us. We don't need to have a necklace with a cross on it. We don't need any of those things to know that God is with us. But the principle remains the same, that if God is to be worshipped, He is to be worshipped according to His ways and not according to mine. And that is one of those things that really, that I had to deal with. Being someone who has studied music since the age of four, when I go to different churches or even sometimes to my own church and I listen to the music, not often, I love the music here because I'm part of it as well, but there is something called the curse of knowledge and I have that. And when I listen to other bands play worship music, I'm like, mm, off note, mm, I wouldn't have done that. Mm, that wasn't very good. Oh, why is he doing that? Oh, <sighs> call that music. And I'm like, well, if you play music this way, then I will worship. And I love, you know, I am like, Beck and I are sometimes like just complete opposites. And God's blessed me with all this music knowledge. God's blessed Beck with a lot of other skills. <laughs> She's the best mother. She's the best encourager. She's the best at so many other things. But worship, music, worship is her thing. Worship is more her thing than my thing, I reckon, sometimes. But music is not her thing. And she'll go to any place and she'll be like, Nate, Stop it. Worship God. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I'm here to do. Why did I make worship my way? When did that become okay? When did, when did the Bible say, now that you're in a new covenant and under grace, you get to worship when you want to worship? When did the new covenant say that by God's grace, you can now treat God like your slave, that you worship and then you rub his lamb and then he comes out and he gives you three wishes? Why is it that we can change the way that God is to be worshipped 
when the Bible actually describes all of these things. And this is one of the things that I actually have to apologize to you as a church, because as your pastor, I wanted to create a space of worship where we could be, you know, not always hyped up and loud, but we can have reflective moments. But in the same token, on the same token, I, I reckon I created a culture where we were apologetic about expressing our worship to God. And that is something that I'm hoping to change through this short series and through my actions and through my worship and my example as well. Because I started to study worship of God in the Bible over the last few months because I felt that there was something that needed to change. And, and, and David is a great example. We're going to go into this whole naked king business in just a moment. But I just want to go into some of the stuff because it was really exciting. When David got the ark into Jerusalem, he immediately, according to 1 Chronicles, set up 24-7 worship music happening in the presence of God. I never knew that before. He got the best musicians of the whole of Israel and he said, you guys set up teams 24 hours a day worshiping before the Lord. We do not let worship stop in this church. We do not let worship stop in this, it wasn't church, sorry, in Israel. There must always be worship of God. I'm like, I don't know if I have that same value. I don't know if I do. They, they, they had all of these different setups and all of these different things. And as I started looking at New Testament, and we're going to talk about one of those verses in a moment, worship is actually talked about in the Bible. But you don't get to tell God how he's to be worshipped. Can you imagine if I went to Beck and said, you'll be encouraged the way that I want to encourage you. You'll be honoured the way that I want to honour you. You will smile and you will laugh when I tell you to smile. Why do we control God? When did that happen? When did the cross become my crown? There's something that we need to look into this. And so let's come to David and this whole dancing and underwear business. What we need to understand is that the linen ephod is the key piece of clothing in this whole episode, right? And as I was looking into this, I was like, is linen ephod linen underwear? That was basically what I needed to find out. And what I found out is that linen ephod is not linen underwear. Ephod is probably better described as like a, an apron-y kind of a thing, but this is particularly, this is the high priestly uniform, okay? And the high priestly uniform, uh, you can see that, that weird apron, that is an ephod, um, that's what is called an ephod in the Bible, and it's made of linen and it has all of these different things on it. So, David was wearing a plain linen ephod, not that because he wasn't a high priest, he's not allowed to wear that, but he was wearing priestly type garments, but a plain version of it. He was basically, I don't know how to express this in a proper way, but he was basically wearing really drab clothings that the, the materials and all of that would have been more used for the priestly class, the priestly people, but without all the adornment, without all the gemstones, without all of the crazy stuff, David, in order to wear a linen ephod, would have needed to take off his kingly regalia, take off his kingly crown, his kingly robe, all of the jewelry that 
he possibly would have been wearing, take them all off in order to put on a linen ephod. And when Michelle saw that he had taken off all that identified him as king, she took that as he was being a commoner. She took that to the next degree and calls him a vulgar fella. She basically looked at him and went, why were you not the king at the head of your procession? She basically went, why did you choose to be like another commoner in your procession? And so when David looked at her, he says this, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. You see, sometimes the worship of God demands that we put aside the things that we identify ourselves with. Sometimes we need to think about how we dignify ourselves, clothe ourselves with what makes us think that we are valuable in society. You see, I learned about this a little while ago. There is a difference between self-worth and self-esteem. Self-worth is your true worth. As Christians, we believe that your worth comes from being created in God's image, is being called, is being gifted, is being knit together by God. Your self-worth is unchangeable because it is what God has determined. Our self-esteem, on the other hand, is how we feel about our self-worth. And our self-esteem is changeable depending on the weather. Sometimes, for some people, literally, you look at a teenager, how are you feeling today? Oh, it's raining. I feel depressed. I've got no self... No, joking, if you're a teenager, love you guys. But there's this changeable nature of our self-esteem. And what we often do as human beings is that we try to put on more layers of dignifying clothing, our Instagram accounts, our social media, our education, our certificates, our job titles, our houses, our cars, uh, the, the way that I joke. I, I, was, I used to be like that. I used to think that I wasn't a very funny person and the only humor that I seemed to be good at was sarcasm. So I became that sarcastic fella. They always made sarcastic jokes. They made other people laugh. I will wear all of these things and I'll go, this is who Nate is. This is not who Nate is. This is how Nate esteems himself. It's actually worthless compared to what he truly is. And when we come into God's presence and we try to worship him, how many of us are, uh, are worshiping him from a place of understanding how much he has already given to us? Or how many of us are worshiping from a place of like, if I don't have those things, I'm nothing. And so I need to put on my kingly costumes and my mask to make me feel like God's going to accept me or make this about myself. See, when we worship God, we actually need to look into how David talks about it. He says, I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated, not in other people's eyes. No, David says, I will be humiliated in my own eyes. And that taught me something about worship. You see, so often worship, we want to build God up, but we want to build God up while we build ourselves up. Oh, I love worship because worship makes me feel edified. Oh, look how high I put my hands. I'm so holy. Oh, look how much I kneel before God's presence. I'm so holy. We put worship on like another piece of our garments. 
thinking that that is going to make me feel better about myself. Like what God is saying, or what David was saying, is I will become more humiliated in my own eyes. I'm going to see myself as lesser because I want to worship my God. I don't want to get in my own way of worship. How many of us are worshiping God through the lens of our garments that we put on? How many of us are, are, are worshiping God through the lens of our experiences, the lens of all that we know, rather than worshiping God for who He is? And so David said, none of this, I did that the first time. I built a whole procession for myself, and I recognize that God, and so I'm not going to enter in with you side by side. I'm going to become one of the worshipers, the humiliated ones, in order that your presence can be in my life. How many of us want to really have God's presence in our lives? How many of us truly wants to know that God's presence is in our lives? And how are you bringing God's presence in? Are you bringing him on your snazzy clothing, your pitch perfect songs, or you're bringing him just like a common slave that is willing to say, God, you take first place and you take the only place. I'm just here to be in your presence. I want to make it a bit more real. How many of us have our personalities, our dignity when we come into God's presence? Oh, I don't raise my arms because only the commoners raise their arms. I won't sing out loud because no one wants to hear my voice. I'm, I'm an introvert, so I only worship like this. Where do we get that from? Because let me tell you, it's not in the Bible. Read through the Psalms. Shout to the Lord of joy. How many of you have ever done that? Literally, think about that. When was the last time you shouted for joy to the Lord? Where you were so overtaken by His presence, by His glory, by His beauty, that you went, God, you are so good, and I'm so glad that I get to be in your presence. Some of you have never raised your voice at God because for some reason, maybe your upbringing, you thought that that was being irreverent of the Lord. You know what's being irreverent of the Lord? Touching His presence in the wrong way. Whew. The Bible says this, lift up your hands in worship. That is biblical. Psalm 63, Psalm 141. And then you might say, well, there's the Old Testament. Well, take this, 1 Timothy 2 verse 8. Paul wrote, lift up holy hands to the Lord. How high? Well, as high as you can make it then. The Bible says, sing a new song. God loves music. Isn't that strange? The one who created it actually enjoys it. We don't need to sing the hymns from 80 years ago before God loves our worship. God loves the drums, the electric guitars, everything. He loves it when you sing a new song to Him that expresses something, expresses joy, expresses reverence, expresses honor, expresses praise. God just wants you to get worship to enjoy worship. God loves when we worship.
I find it really interesting in Ephesians 5. I was um, looking at this overview of the book of Ephesians and um, it's kind of interesting. The first three chapters are all about how um, the salvation story, basically. It's captured in the first three chapters of Ephesians and then the second half is more about how we live in the light of um, salvation. The second half is basically our response. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and then the ch- a little bit of chapter 5, Paul basically describes how some of us don't know how to worship God. And he kind of goes into that. And then in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, which is not on the screen, but you can check this out for yourself. This is the first thing Paul says. This is the first thing. Take this. In the whole book of e- Ephesians, the first thing Paul says about how to relate to God based on salvation, okay? First thing. So it says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, which means this is a final kind of statement about being separate from the world. And then he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Yes, very important. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. The first thing that Paul describes to the Ephesian church about the actions to do, not the actions not to do, the actions to do because of the salvation that God has given to us is to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Lord. It's this corporate worship. And then he goes on to then say, this is the second thing to do, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first things that Paul says to the Ephesian church about being separate from the world because of salvation is corporate worship and personal worship. And corporate worship, personal worship in the form of songs, in the form of worship, in the form of music, in the form of getting together and actually singing songs about God to God, about remembering all that He has done. I never noticed those things. I I noticed what happens after that. Paul talks about the structure of families. Paul talks about all of these other things that we are to do. But at the heart of it, he says, get together and sing songs of worship to God. And then get into your own time and sing songs of worship to God. Do you get the sense that songs of worship is meant to be part of our everyday life? I didn't know that. I've always appreciated worship and music, but I just thought that that was just something that was. That was just because I enjoyed music. But the Bible actually describes a lifestyle of singing songs that worships God. And how that is a part of our spirit-filled lives. Can I ask you, how's your worship life going? Can I ask you, when was the last time you took time out? And you're all here, so that's great. We just had some time to sit, to stand, to worship. But how are you going singing songs to God? I, I, I think because Paul says, be filled with the Spirit and sing songs of worship. I wonder whether there's a link between those two. I wonder whether there's a link between us being able to get into a place where we are singing songs of worship, whether we feel like it or not. 
and inviting more and more of the Spirit into our lives, bringing this flow in. I wonder whether we build up hardness and an intolerance of God's presence in our lives and impatience with God when we stop a lifestyle of worship. And maybe that's why when David got the ark into Jerusalem, he immediately said, where the worshipers at? Let's get you guys going because this place will never stop worshiping because we need God's presence more than anything. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. This morning when I, I called the band back up, I know our time is nearly up. You know, I'm not going to force you to worship. Because worship should never be forced. But the band's going to lead us in a few more songs. I'm going to close the official gathering. But I pray that you will stay for a bit and learn how to worship. Singing a song, shouts of joy, lifting your hands. Those are only a few of the examples that the Bible gives us on how to worship our God. And this morning, I would just like us to have a space where we just worship. Where we just enter into God's presence. Where we just give Him the due reverence. Where we check ourselves and check our hearts. What am I bringing into God's presence? Am I bringing my kingly regalia or my willing to be humiliated in my own eyes? to be less dignified in my own eyes. No one here is out to listen to how you sing or to watch how you worship. Maybe someone else is, but who cares? What matters is that you are doing this for God and for God only. Do you notice how King David talked about this? He said this to Michelle, I will be more undignified than this. I'll become humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls who you just described as no one's, they're going to see what I did, and they're going to go, that's a good king. How, how twisted and upside down sometimes we get things in, in, the, in looking for our own dignity and in, in, in looking for our own self-esteem. We, we twist the world upside down, and, and we try to gain things that mean nothing, and in the middle of doing that, we lose things that mean everything. And so this morning, can we just stand? I'm going to say a prayer to close our gathering and then the band's going to lead us. And you stay as long as you want. But my prayer is that there'll be something stirring inside of you to worship, to sing, to praise our God. Dear God, I pray that as a church we capture a heart of worship, a heart to sing songs of worship to you, a heart that is willing to be undignified and humiliated in our own eyes. Thank God that you can get all glory and all honor. I pray, God, that we will put aside everything else. We will put aside how we think other people will think about us. But God, we will do the things that you have put in your word and how you want to be worshipped. And so, God, I pray that we will have the courage to raise our hands high to the heavens, that we will shout with our voices whether we sing well or not, but we will do that because we want to lift you up, God. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. That's the end of our gathering. Head to the back. Make sure you sign up for the Christmas dinners. Have some morning tea.
But if you feel like you're in this place and you just want to have a time and you just want to practice some worship with band of leaders and a couple of songs, thanks so much, church. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.